0: Welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up soon, we are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists presenting at the meeting so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On June 20th, 2023, we talked with Jono Absher, a graduate student in the Stedman Lab at Portland State University. He received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. He studies extreme viruses that infect archaea that live in volcanic hot springs. So thanks for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so uh, my name is Jonathan Abshire. Uh, I go by Jono. And I am currently a second year PhD student over at Portland State University, working in the Center for Life and Extreme Environments, Um, really, uh, in particular, in working in the extreme virus lab. Um, And just a normal kind of guy, I like um, hiking, uh, do some gardening, and then a lot of cooking outside of my grad school uh, life.
0: Cool. And can you tell us how you first became interested in science and then virology?
1: Yeah, no. So my at least introduction to both science and like scientific research happened in undergrad. I was fortunate enough to take one of those cure uh, courses in which undergrads are really exposed to um, just scientific research. And it was a really simple project. We were looking at how many people were bringing reusable bags or using plastic bags at a grocery store, which I thought was really interesting. Um, We were kind of swayed to do a project that wasn't super scientific and was more just observational. But that really um, got me interested in like the process of seeking out data. And then also the importance of like having that data um, was just a really cool kind of concept to me um, so post that, I decided to join several labs at my undergraduate university, initially working in an epigenetics lab um, with Alzheimer's and comorbidities. That was a lot of literature review, um, a lot of paper uh, reading, things like that. So that was, that was a really fun experience. Um, then moved on to a uh, HIV lab where we looked at, you know, some virology stuff. Um, particularly treatments for HIV and in these reservoir organs for that virus. And then I was fortunate enough to do uh, really several undergraduate summer programs, Um, one in uh, the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation, so LSAMP, uh, and then another one in New Orleans where I got to just kind of stay there for a while and do some really interesting neuroscience research um, with the NSF.
0: Oh, cool. Um, and then can you describe how then you got into graduate school? Sort of how did you um, choose your institution and your lab? How did that work?
1: Yeah. So I actually was one of the one of the ones to take a gap year in between both my undergrad and grad school. And I really found it extremely helpful, um, or at least in my case, having, you know, a lot of undergraduate research experience. I found it very easy to um, land a position as a lab technician. Eventually, moving uh, moving my way up to lab assistant at, at one of a, a larger research university, and that experience working for at least a year, a year and a half in that lab, just kind of going through the daily motions, you know, making solutions, um, asking, you know, the the more senior scientists um, what they may need for that day. And, and that was kind of the point where I said, OK, I really want to do this full time and I want to do it on my own terms, my own research, um, which was kind of the driver for going to grad school and applying to grad school. Um, I applied in a few. Uh, Portland State in particular really stuck out to me just with one, the science they were doing. Um, I am a biology student, so I'm in the biology program uh, prior to that. My undergrad was in biomedical sciences, and a lot of the science I had been doing was translational science, so a lot of bedside um, to bench kind of things. So I wanted to do like some really, um, really hardcore science, which is uh, why I settled on the extreme virus lab here at PSU.
0: Great. And um, can you tell us what you mean by extreme viruses? What does that mean? What are some of the big questions with extreme viruses and what are some of the, I guess, tools that you use to study them?
1: Yeah, so uh, I know that that in this particular climate, um, when we talk about viruses, they have a pretty bad rap thus far um, with COVID-19 happening in the last few years. Um, However, we actually look at viruses that live and thrive in these volcanic hot springs. So worldwide, um, in Russia, uh, Iceland, Italy, you name it. Anywhere you find these volcanic hot springs, uh, especially in the U.S., we can find these uh, extremophiles. Um, the organism that I work work with, in particular, is called Sacralobus sulfactericus and really enjoys these conditions around eighty degrees Celsius, so um, around one hundred seventy-six degrees Fahrenheit, so boiling, and then uh, really low pHs from around four to as low as one. So think about boiling lemon juice. You know, doesn't uh, sound too tasty, but people really don't assume that one, organisms live there, and two, that organisms that are infected by these crazy extreme viruses live there. So uh, along with the extremophile, there is this really interesting um, spindle-shaped virus that I work with, so SSV-1, otherwise known as Sulfolobus spindle-shaped virus-1. And it's got a really unique um, shape. It's actually a lemon shape. Um, these archaeoviruses have really interesting shapes, and we may think that they're, you know, precursors, that, you know, drove evolution of these extremophiles, um, considering what we know now about the three kingdoms of of life, right? So archaea, eukarya, and then um, bacteria, archaea being some of the older ones. Um, And yeah, really looking at the the mechanisms in which these viruses are thriving alongside their hosts in these extreme environments um, are are some of the questions we're asking. Um, there's a lot of implications for, are there viruses in space? You know, these viruses can exist in these really extreme conditions. And we know there are other extreme viruses that infect other extremophiles um, that could exist outside of our solar system. And, and a lot of these um, particular environments that we study are analogs for other uh, planets, so spaces and other planets. Um, so that's one set. And my work in particular that I'll be presenting on at ASV is, um, is in regards to toxin antitoxin systems. So we've recently found um, that when we look at infection of these particular cells, um, there's not a lot of killing going on. Um, Whereas when we look at viruses and how they kill cells, you know, there's there's the replication that happens inside and eventually bursting. Um, So we do see this kind of replication method among this virus, but we notice that there is some kind of at least growth inhibition effect. Um, So I know people are familiar with plaque assays. Um, A lot of that is due to, you know, the cell bursting because of the virus replicating and and being so much for that particular cell going on to infecting other ones. Um, In this case, there's a toxin, antitoxin, that's um, allowing the Community that has the virus to persist in its environment, but also outcompete its other uh, communal organisms. Um, so those are two particular ways that we're looking at things, and then um, really just using basic molecular biology techniques. So doing a lot of um, a lot of DNA preps, a lot of mutagenesis. We actually just finished um, with our 2023 cohort of a cure lab. So we we have a cure lab um, called Mutant Viruses from Hell in which uh, the undergrads will sign up and we kind of allow them to uh, have free reign with things. We give them mutants uh, of our particular virus and they kind of go along the lines to characterize those mutants. Um, and some of them actually do end up being used in, in work in the lab um, and which those students have the opportunity to publish or, or at least be an author on a paper.
0: Oh, that's very cool. and. So do most of these viruses that you study, they, you know, the host and you're able to kind of grow the virus and plaque the virus, you know, this kind of a thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, which is, um, as you could imagine, quite difficult. So we have a lot of very hot incubators. Um, we actually don't use uh, water, at least in our shaking incubators, right? You think really high 80 degrees Celsius, 176, water is going to boil and just evaporate. We use are really thick, a polyethylene glycol substance, which holds heat really well. Um, And then, of course, we grow plates. Um, They're they're very, very easy organisms to work with, at least the extremophile. Um, They can grow pretty aerobically, anaerobically, microarophilically. They're just uh, all around pretty crazy organism to work with.
0: Cool. And then do you actually look for novel viruses in this system? Do you do any like genomics or looking for different hosts, different viruses in these environments?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we we actually do, uh, we actually have done quite a few metagenomic studies in a particular area that we go and sample in California. And one thing that uh, I'm not working on in the lab, but it's uh, under our extreme virus umbrella, there is a chimeric virus that we've found, at least in the sequence that seems to have remnants of both, um, or at least evidence of a genome that uses both RNA and DNA. Um, so this kind of recombinatory event that happened um, for this single stranded um, virus. And it's it's wild, we call it crucivirus in the lab.
0: What's next for you? Um, you know, if you're thinking about your future, where do you wanna to go to next? Where do you see yourself in five, 10 years?
1: Yeah, yeah, so at least for the next um, five years, I'd like to finish out my PhD. Um, I anticipate a lot of teaching on the way, uh, at least along the way. I've had several great experiences, um, at least working with younger students, undergraduates, and uh, just seeing them present kind of work that I've helped them move along through and and just progressed as as their research mentor. Um, I think that's one thing that I'd really like to incorporate within the next five years. And my goal is to just ultimately be a teacher um, to young students, but I would like to do that in perhaps a national lab setting where there's, you know, um, ample funding for these kinds of things, um, really exploratory studies. i like to, uh, work with maybe NASA, um, and, and talk about looking for viruses in space. I think that's the logical next step for all of us. Um, and then, yeah, 10 years, maybe, maybe be in charge, kind of leading some of these things, um, really uh, with, with, the goal in mind of being a teacher ultimately, and just sharing the knowledge and expertise and, and resources that I can for younger students.
0: Cool. And, um, thinking about your ultimate question, viruses in space, Mm -hmm. how do you find viruses in space? I mean, I guess to me, it seems like the biggest issue is always contamination.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, that's definitely one of the, one of the bigger things, um, astrovirology, which is that little portion under astrobiology that kind of talks about these things. Um, from what I've seen, there's not a lot of virologists involved um in, in kind of the search for life on other planets, right? We think viruses, we don't our, our first jump isn't, oh, viruses are alive. Um, you know, that's that's the the debate, the thing we'll debate until the end of time. Um, but I think you know just just the sheer abundance of viruses on Earth, um, ten to the non-million in what like an mL or a liter of ocean water. Um, there are some techniques that are currently being or in development, at least. So I know that they're working on putting a fluorescence microscope on one of the upcoming missions, um, and it's about the size of a banana. So you know, for those familiar with the fluorescence microscope, it's usually pretty huge. Um, But to be able to like stain DNA and some of these proteins that exist on the outside, those are kind of critical, um, at least I would think, uh, in the search for viruses, since all we're looking for is really a um, membrane with or or a, a, a small structure with some kind of order and has some DNA or RNA, or whatever um, kind of genetic material might look like on another planet, right? Um, so that's another thing that we kind of have to think about Are viruses made uh, the same everywhere. Are we just assuming that ATGC are the base pairs for all life? Um, yeah, a lot of questions um, that need a lot of answers.
0: Cool, cool. Um, and then I guess um, I like to ask people sort of, um, is there things that you would, that you know now that you would kind of wish that your younger self uh, knew, like that you could tell your younger self? And if so, what would it be?
1: Yeah, um, I'd say one thing is, don't get super discouraged. Um, While, you know, uh, you're, you're going to expect failure. And it's kind of natural to be upset about those kinds of things. And um, kind of digress into you know a state where you feel like there's no growth. Um, just kind of keeping my head up.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we look forward to hearing about your research at ASV.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com.